0: Hello, this is David Feingold, your host for the Future of Higher Education, and I'm here today with Mary Marcy, the president of Dominican University and author of The Small College Imperative, Models for Sustainable Futures. Mary, it's great to be with you today.
1: I'm happy to be here. It's great to to talk. These are conversations we've had for a long time, David, so it's fun to, to think about it a bit more deeply.
0: Super. So so to start off, could you just share uh, with our listeners a little bit about your upbringing, um, where you grew up, went, went to education, and when did you decide in that journey to become an academic?
1: Uh, sure. I uh, I was not someone who grew up saying I'm going to be a, a faculty member or a professor or anything like that. Uh, I actually grew up on a cattle ranch uh, in Nebraska, and it was the real thing. It was about 20 miles from town. Town had 600 people in it. Uh, there were 32 in my high school class, so it gives you a sense of was um, fairly remote. And uh, I did my undergraduate work at the University of Nebraska, which was really what you did if you went to college in Nebraska at that time. Um, and I was fortunate enough that I had a tremendous mentor, uh, one faculty member and one staff member, who really encouraged me and said I should apply to graduate school. And so I did, uh, and I ended up getting admitted to, uh, as you did, to the University of Oxford. I'd never been out of the country. (laughs) I'd barely been out of a four-state region in the middle of the country. Uh, So the first time I had a passport was actually to go to school uh, at Oxford. And um, I was completely, completely daunted by it and and intimidated. In fact, um, when I got there, uh, one of the things that that you know from Oxford, David, is that you you have your own room, which is lovely. And it's on a staircase in a college. So I was given the keys to my room when I checked in. And I dutifully went up to the room and unlocked it. And it was about a maybe a 10 by 12 room with bookshelves and a little bench and a desk. It was a beautiful view. It was right across the street from the Sheldonian. So it was fabulous. But there was no bed. There was no... Place to sit except to sit at the table and I thought wow they're, they're like intensely serious about this <laughs> no bed that, that <laughs> but, seems a bit extreme But I thought, okay, that's the way they roll in Oxford so I unpacked I put my you know I like put my clothes underneath the little bench and I, I started to put stuff up on the bookshelves and um, the guy graduate student down the hall came in and said what are you doing and I said I'm unpacking and he said are you sleeping in here and I said this is my room and he said oh graduate students get a, a study and a bedroom your bedroom's down the hall and so um, I, I was a laughingstock for the uh, for the first uh, quarter or first term at, at, at my college. But I think the attitude was actually something that's always been with me, which is saying, well, OK, that's how we do it here. And, you know, kind of adjusting um, it tells you how naive I was. And, uh, you know, Oxford ended up being for me the place where I found my voice, realized that I had things that I was deeply passionate about intellectually, um, and really kind of found my feet. And uh, there are people who do incredibly well in the world where I grew up, you know, that, that should be running ranches like my brothers are, that should be, uh, you know, tending fields. For me, um, I turns out I was always an academic and I didn't know it until I had the opportunity. So that's the, the kind of origin story. And what it meant for me later was saying, higher education is not only the great equalizer, it's the place for people to find what it is that they're meant to contribute and do in the world. Uh, And that's the opportunity that I want to create for others. And it's certainly an opportunity that I found for myself. So I don't know that that meant, obviously, um, academic leadership when I started, but it was a pretty natural path after that.
0: Great, and and can you just say a little which which college was it in Oxford, and what was what was the what were your studies, what were you working on there?
1: Yeah, I was at Trinity College, uh, which I chose because I was a political scientist, and at that time uh, the president of Trinity was was a well-known public servant. And uh, I read some of his stuff uh, in as an undergraduate. So I thought, well, that's obviously the place for me. And as these things go, by the time I got there, he had transitioned out. Um, But it was still a great fit. So I studied uh, politics. Uh, As you know, they don't say political science. They just say politics, which uh, may be more accurate, uh, and got my master's, my master of philosophy, my doctor of philosophy and politics there. Right. And my specialist and focus then, was on women in politics, actually, which was kind uh, of fascinating because Margaret Thatcher was prime minister at the time, and Mary Robinson was president of Ireland, and uh, it was a really interesting time.
0: A, a good time for women leaders over in in, in the UK, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, so, so tell me, you said that you know, obviously, with the study of women leaders, and and your your focus on higher ed, it was kind of a natural progression. But when, when in that journey did you decide you, you might want to become a university president? Uh,
1: you know, I came back to the States and I, I really loved my dissertation. I loved, I loved what I was studying, but I wasn't sure that I wanted to be a full-time faculty member. And I, I spent some time actually with those mentors at the University of Nebraska who encouraged me to be an academe, but not necessarily take the traditional route. Um, so I started out um, teaching, but also being a director of government relations, which was a perfect fit for me. Um, so I was a director of government relations at a public university in Washington, uh, and I was teaching classes on women in politics. And from there, I went um, fairly quickly to be uh, chief of staff a president and a dean and um, and then kind of moved up the ranks from there.
0: And when, when the opportunity at Dominican came up, had, had you applied for, had you been looking at presidencies before that? Or, or how, how did that particular one co- come
1: about that was successful? Yeah, it was it was a, it was a funny um, kind of process, because I had been running the Simons Rock campus of Bard College for seven years, which was a wonderful fit. It's a great institution. Um, but I was really, it wasn't just the ranch, I was really, uh, felt I had roots in the West, and my, my part, then partner now spouse does too. And so we wanted to move back west at some point. Um, And of course, you can't orchestrate these things. We thought next two or three years, the right opening comes up. Uh, And uh, of course, uh, this just happened to open up right away. Um, I hadn't heard of Dominican. I'm not Catholic. I'm gay. I frankly thought the search consultant was being a little uh, not listening real closely. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, But she said, trust me, uh, I think there's a good fit here. And uh, and as I went through the interview process, it really felt like there was a good fit. And it was more about the philosophy, I would say, and the founding values of the institution, which are very much built around engaged learning and education as opportunity. And I was really drawn to the um, diversity of the student body, which is, you know, when I was arrived, it was about half students of color. We're now almost two-thirds students of color. I often say we look like California, which means we look like the future of the country. And I was really, really um, taken with that possibility because I wanted to um, see if we could not continue to mold education in a way that provides genuine opportunity rather than just you know, re- just strat- further stratification. And um, so that's been a big part of my work here and it's felt like a good fit.
0: Great. Well, I'd like to turn now to, to your book. Um, uh, the decision to, to write it, um, not easy to do on top of of any college presidency but I know that you also were, had to deal with some major challenges like the fires in California and, and other issues so I'm, I'm curious what what was it that that led you to decide to write the book and then how were you able to make the time for it on top of uh, uh, of your day job
1: sure yeah um... Well, some of it is hubris, I suppose. You don't know how hard it's going to be until you're doing it and then you feel obligated. Um, but the, the book actually started with a conversation with my board, uh, you know, as we were working on the strategic plan saying, uh, where does Dominican fit in this landscape of American higher education? Where should we be going? You know, the question that we all ask. And um, after, after that engagement, I, I came back, at the, they challenged me to say, you know, describe the landscape, basically. And I started thinking about the different types of institutions and um, not just the, what, you know, what athletic conference are you in or, or where do you rank in U.S. News, but actually different types of institutions. And that's when I came to, to, to begin to start the framework of, of, of the models. Um, I then wrote it up for Change Magazine and for um, for a AGB white paper. And that got quite a bit of traction, so that's where the book came from. Was that there was interest from the publishers based on those papers? Uh, the board was incredibly supportive, and uh, and I have a very strong vice president for academic affairs. So I had a, a, a brief three month sabbatical at the Harvard Graduate School of Education to just focus on finishing the book. That wouldn't have it wouldn't have happened if I didn't already have the paper kind of a framework for it. Um, and also, then some of the graduate students helped with the uh, case studies, which was incredibly important um, and really valuable to not just have an idea, but to actually say, "What does this look like in practice at different places?" and and uh, you know get some texture behind it. So uh, there, you know, there was all the usual sleepless nights and, and a lot of weekends, but that's that's just part of the drill. Um, California has had real challenges. Uh, we've, along with the pandemic, now we do have had. we've had a Red Cross Center on campus to deal with folks from the fires. Uh, We've had to take in our own alumni who were affected by it. We've had people displaced because of the fires. The campus itself hasn't had to shut down, but that's been, um, and I'm afraid will continue to be a real ongoing challenge here. Um, Fortunately, that fall, it was not, you know, the worst of the fires and, and it kind of worked out for me to be at Harvard.
0: Um, So as you mentioned, the book lays out a taxonomy, five different models for colleges Mm -hmm. to pursue. Um, And you describe that as a kind of continuum of change from the traditional, what we would think of as the more selective uh, uh, elite liberal arts colleges integrated, which uh, a a lot of institutions, NACU that I'm a part of, or however you use that acronym, to to, to the growth and uh, distributed models, the more transformative change. So I'm curious, as you came up with those five, and of course, distinctive being being the other, um, did you look at, consider with those grad students, uh, other models from those five? Um, how did you sort of settle on that particular
1: taxonomy? Well, I think of them as not um, 100% discrete, right? You can have pieces from each one, but what I was trying to do was say, um, if you read, the pop, the, 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 general media, you know, you read the New York times or something, you'd think that a liberal arts college is, you know, Williams, Colgate, et cetera. Uh, and then there's the Ivy league plus Stanford and Duke. I mean, you kind of know the drill, right. Um, and it seemed to me that when I would try and describe the kinds of inst- other institutions with folks that were not um, kind of inside the bubble, it was hard to do because you would keep saying how you're different from them. At the same time, those of us within the bubble, it seemed to me we're often trying a lot of different things, especially as the demographic uh, and economic pressures came to bear, that sometimes we're even in conflict with each other. So I was trying to create a framework to say, and you're thinking about a strategic direction forward, it has to be less than the purest, there's only one way to do the liberal arts, and it's the way we've been doing it for the last 50 years but it has to be more than let's just try a little bit of everything and see what sticks. Um, so, so how do you create uh, a pathway that has some clarity where you can start to ask questions about mission, you can ask, start to ask questions about student success, about the types of students you have um, and about your own strengths. And so it, it really came from a notion of understanding the, the complexity of especially smaller colleges And recognizing that because we're small, none of us can do all of it. And the choice that we make about how we move forward is actually crucial to our own um, sustainability.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious, as you thought about the five, do you think of them as kind of encompassing our whole universe of, of private, nonprofit institutions? You know, one group that occurred to me would be like the design schools, which... I think don't really fit your model of distinctive. They're distinctive in their program offering, but not in the sense you're describing it of kind of the holistic support or, or distinctive common student experience. So just curious how you were thinking of it in terms of would you imagine putting all institutions in one of the five or 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 are there others?
1: Yeah. Um, it's a it's a great question. I thought about it a lot. I would say that there's a couple of different cuts you could take that I, I didn't. Um, one is looking at, you know, I was really looking at the student experience rather than, you know, are you an engineering institution or, as you said, a design institution? Or, so, I, so I was kind of agnostic about that. But then I think some of those institutions probably don't fit as naturally within any of these. Um, the other place that I was somewhat agnostic was, because was, I think the institutions have to answer the question, is what kind of students do you have? Right. So there are people could argue we're, we're distinctive. We I mean, like the place that I ran, Bard College at Simons Rock, we take young, really smart people. Um, we're distinctive in our students. But if you look at their core curriculum, their, their academic curriculum, it's actually not that different from any classic liberal arts college. Right. Um, similarly for HBCUs or women's colleges. So I was agnostic about whether your students are different. Because I think that's an institutional question. I think within the broad framework of kind of comprehensive type uh, independent institutions, it's a pretty comprehensive taxonomy. Um, yep. I think for those that have specialty areas uh, that are, that are you know, only focused on psychology or something, uh, it probably doesn't right. encompass them as much.
0: And, and can you talk a little about what you saw as the key distinctions between the growth model and the distributed model? Is that simply a matter of, of scale? Uh, of how how much growth has occurred is it is it a distinction in the approach to growth you know you talk about a lot in the distributed of the sort of the 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 hard look at ROI and and uh, mm-hmm. evaluating new programs so just trying to think about how you when you're trying to decide well where where does one fit or yeah. how, how does
1: um, actually, when uh, I was working with the students at Harvard, one of them called the, called the um, distributed model just all the others on steroids, which I thought was probably <laughs> a good example. But I, I think the, the key distinction is actually that I think it was Utica and Chapman that I used as examples. Um, they, they still have a very strong uh, place-based campus. And so their extension beyond that, it's, it's more of a, a hub-and-spoke kind of model and in the distributed model, uh, even though University of Southern New Hampshire, or, Southern, excuse me, SNU, Southern New Hampshire University, um, has New Hampshire, Southern New Hampshire in its name, uh, I would say that they are more virtual online and everywhere and less based specifically in Southern New Hampshire as a campus. So I would not describe them so much as a, a hub and spoke model. And I, I think that's the primary, primary distinction. And of course, then you start moving between modalities of educational delivery to online versus in-person and um, and so on.
0: And w- when I was, you know, reading it and trying to think about it relative to Chatham, you know, one of my challenges, and we're, as you know, we're a somewhat unusual institution, but I saw elements of, you know, of integrated, distinctive growth and distributed all in what we do. And I was trying to think about it. Does that mean we're not prioritizing anything? Or is yeah. there an ability to think about these not, not so much as I have to do mostly one or the other, but you know, it seems to me what what you particularly emphasize in distinctive being student centered and offering a really distinctive experience, if you can integrate that into both grad and undergrad and then take it into new modalities that that, that could have elements of of all of those ones you're describing, and so just trying to think about how how you think about those and and you know how you went about it when thinking about Dominican and some some of what you were doing. Sure,
1: yeah, I I do think that that the distinctive program is the one. It's interesting. It's the one that's the most attractive to people. Those of us who are you know. Um, kind of leading institutions because we all think we're distinctive for starters. Right. Uh, and secondly, it's like, it's cool, right? What, what are we going to be known for, um, you know, beyond? No, uh, no one wants to be the
0: reverse of distinct, right? right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, um, but, it, but at the same time, I think it's, uh, I think it may be the most powerful because it's about the student, it says, so the student experience comes first. And it's not just we do some interesting things or we offer things, but we're going to make sure that every student has whatever it is, right? So for Agnes Scott, it's the summit experience around women's leadership and internationalization. For Dominican, it's it's the Dominican experience around integrated learning and, um, you know, capstone experiences and coaching. But what's interesting is it's the only space where – I mean, Dominican's certainly not a traditional liberal arts college and hasn't been for a number of years, right? We added health sciences. We added a business school. Um, we're actually arguably much more in the, the NACU space. Um, right. You
0: we, were already, without having joined NACU, right? You were already exactly. in the integrated space when you went to distinctive.
1: Exactly. Exactly right. Yeah. Whereas Agnes Scott and Furman are very much in the classic liberal arts space. Um, yeah. We continue to add new programs. Uh, you know, we started a business analytics program last year, like a lot of places have. We're, we're you know, expanding our nursing program to be more online next year. I, we need to do those things. The, the, what the, the distinctive uh, program space allows us to do is say, we're not going to do anything new that, where we can't deliver these experiences for students, graduate or undergraduate, on site or beyond. Um, and I think that's what is crucial about it. I think the tension for institutions often is when that notion of the liberal arts comes in conflict with, we're adding so many graduate professional programs, do liberal arts even exist anymore? Are they just here as service courses? Um, can we even call ourselves a liberal? So, so I was trying to get away from those, what I think of as almost false dichotomies, and, and, and away from the conflict between programs, which often happens, and say, if it's about what students are learning uh, and the student experience, it, you, know, you can be somewhat agnostic then about the academic programs themselves.
0: Yep. So I, I'd love to turn now, obviously, you wrote the book near the end of your tenure at Dominican. But in thinking about when you first started there and you went about planning and developing uh, your approach, what what was your diagnosis of what you were coming into? What were the biggest challenges you were facing, and how did you go about sort of developing the plan to move?
1: Forward? Sure. Um, so one of the things I mentioned that I was drawn by the student profile, but I was also drawn by the fact that there was a there was a strategic plan. It wasn't quite cooked. It had like thirty six priorities or something crazy. But it you know so it was like it was more just the beginning of the wish list. But there were a bunch of pieces in there that came directly from the research on high impact practices, and the faculty had put them there. Uh, So we had a faculty who was thinking about these things collectively, not only out of their discipline. Um, So that's where the conversation started. I I walked away from the 36 different priorities and said, okay, what is institution-wide and focused on student learning? And we ended up with four, which was great. We could do four, right? Um, and so that's where we started. Um, and then the conversation ended up being quite fun because what we did, um, and I admit that I stole this directly from the way the TECO Foundation used to do some of their granting, we had listenings, um, presidential listenings. So I would have um, a group of about 20 or 30 mixture of faculty and staff over to the house. Um, they would read something about high-impact practices that we were considering in advance, one of the faculty members and one of the staff members would lead the discussion, and it was a presidential listening, so the key, always hard for a president, was that I listened, I didn't say a whole lot. Um, But we captured the conversation and summarized it, and out of that then came the the Dominican experience. Uh, So it was very much owned by the faculty and staff talking about what they felt they could do well and what they were learning from reading the research on high-impact practices and what matters to students like ours.
0: And, you know, one of the challenges, I think, in terms of thinking about how you build the cohesive plan, where where what you're focusing on is this distinctive experience that you want all students to have. And yet, as with any plan, you, you need to have different buckets, things. How did you go about thinking about the integration of the elements that would make up the Dominican experience? And, you know, were there others that, you know, were... Sort of high on the list, but you ended up saying, you know, these are not going to make the cut because obviously there are more high impact practices than that. And so I'm I'm just yeah. curious how you sort of through the planning process got the coherence around these four.
1: Yeah, it was really um, it was really led largely by the faculty's um, skill set as well as their um, their interests and and partly on the institutional history. So. Dominican um, has a series of values that are that are part of our heritage. So we actually are, are no longer uh, Catholic, but we have that history and that heritage, right? So that heritage says the Dominican values are study, reflection, community, and service. So part of the conversation early on was of these high impact practices, what capture those values and kind of carry them forward educationally? The other was being realistic about who our students are and what we could really offer in a Um, kind of broad-based way. So one of the things I learned from talking to the folks at Agnes Scott, for example, is that, you know, they were really able to focus on internationalization as a a cornerstone of their distinctive experience. Didn't really make sense for our students um, because so many of our students are first generation, right? Right. Um, So many of them uh, are Pell eligible. It's not that they couldn't have an international experience, but it would not necessarily be um, something that would draw them to our institution. Uh, because it would be outside of their understanding what they're going to do in college. It would also be a push against things like um, our nursing health sciences programs that are so rigid. It's hard to build that in. So it it became a a conversation about um, what could we do genuinely well. Um, We would have loved to put internationalization in there, of course, uh, but it didn't make sense for our institution. There were a few others in that high impact space that we felt like we couldn't do as effectively. Um, So, yeah, we did have lots of discussions about how do we focus this?
0: What, one of the really labor-intensive pieces that that you did settle on is the notion of integrated coaching. I'm curious, given that you know, not that Agnes Scott is extremely wealthy, but obviously they and Furman came to this with much deeper endowments yes. th- than you had when when you joined Dominican um, to free up the resources to do that and 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 to in- implement that model. How how did you go about saying this is you know this is where we're really wanting to invest? A significant part of our resources?
1: Sure. Uh, I mean, a lot of it was res- reallocation and um, also kind of layering it in. So rather than saying you're going to have a personal integrative coach full-time, et cetera, we have a lot of people that are integrative coaches that do it a quarter time, third time. There's also peer mentors. There are also alumni who serve as the connection for postgraduates. So the integrative coach ends up coordinating a number of touches for that student rather than needing to be the be all on the end all. And they, so they coordinate the faculty advising and so, and so on as well. So their job is to know the universe for that student and be able to point the direction, but it's not, we have, we do have some people who are full-time integrative coaches and we have, you know, a small team there, but the more common is someone who our assistant women's basketball coach is, you know, an integrative coach for, for a group of students. And yeah, she had to have some serious training to do that. It's not just a volunteer job. We, we definitely um, train folks to do it, but there's a lot of people who can do it well when it's not seen only as academic advising. So we've built it into the kind of fabric of a lot of people's tasks here.
0: And, and, and that sort of, you know, put it in someone's portfolio about how many students is a, is a coach like that covering?
1: Um, somebody who's full-time covers, covers I think, um, about 30 now. But somebody who's not full-time, uh, you know, may carry a, a lighter load. But um, the key, we think, is to help them try and carry it all the way through that student's experience, their time at Dominican. Um, so the continuity is as important as anything.
0: Right. So um, it may be hard to disentangle with, with the integrated approach that you had, but, but the impact you had on retention – was really dramatic, right, yeah. in, and graduation rates from yeah. not, frankly, not a great place when you got there, right, uh, yeah. in terms of where you were to, 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 you know, really dramatically improving that in a, in a relatively short period of time. What, what do you think were the biggest factors that, that enabled that?
1: The, there were, I think there were probably two or three, and, you know, I talked about what drew me to the, the place. Uh, that that uh, graduation rate, you um, almost drew me away. I mean, I, I took a really deep breath and said, what's going on. Um, and if I felt like there was something fundamentally that that couldn't be addressed or that people didn't care about students, it would have, I wouldn't have tried it. Yeah. I wouldn't have been here, but what, where Dominican was when I, when I arrived was we'd been in a growth space. And this is probably also part of why I started thinking about the, the different groups in the book. We were constantly adding new programs, constantly, you know, acquiring programs from other places, trying something new here and there. Um, so expansion, but but it wasn't necessarily working financially. Um, and it wasn't, so expand. we you needed know, expand. We needed to get to critical mass. That was good. But in the process, we lacked focus. So part of my job was to say, we've got the critical mass, but how do we make meaning out of that? Um, a big part of the graduation rates was simply that students didn't always know why they were here. And there was a lot of churn because we weren't building in kind of meaningful experiences up front. The biggest changes to retention can be traced almost directly to as we started to implement the Dominican experience, um, because you can start to see students get traction earlier on, which is really important as we know for first-generation students. Um, There are a couple other things that I think were important too. Being willing to say no to programs that we couldn't do well, where the retention rate was either really low or, you know, we just weren't confident in the educational quality. So we said no to things and, and said, you know, that's not who we are. That's not something we're doing well. Um, that was important. And I think that it was also just really important to, to say that students are at the center. That sounds simple. We all say that. But, um, you know, that the most direct correlation is student experience. The other piece is because we were in growth mode, Uh, If there was demand for a program, we would just keep growing it, even if we didn't have the capacity to serve it well. So saying no to some things, but also, you know, there's a certain number of uh, placements that you can have in the health sciences. So why admit students as freshmen if they're not going to have a practicum two years later? Right. Um, So that was a big thing was just capping admissions in places where we knew we couldn't serve students well.
0: Tell me a little about uh, one of your newest innovations—the the partnership with uh, Make Schools for the computer science area—and yeah. and, and how that came about, and and sort of you know layering that on top of the other stuff you were doing. How 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 it's worked?
1: You know, it's been interesting because uh, it started with with somebody basically saying, "I think the two of you need to talk to." Um, my, my counterpart at Make School, who's, a, you know, who's straight out of Central Casting. He's a, a young man, uh, I think he's still in his 20s, uh, who dropped out of MIT because he was bored and uh, you know, wanted to start a new kind of computer science program. And uh, you know grew up in Silicon Valley, his family uh, had worked at, at Apple, et cetera. And he did have really good ideas and cared a lot about students. They were doing a lot more than boot camps. They were really doing a, a, what I would call more like a coding academy. Um, And they wanted to be accredited, but they knew that to get accreditation is a, you know, eight to 10 year slog on vast amounts of resources and you may or may not get there, et cetera. Um, And at the same time, they wanted their students to have more than a computer science experience. So the conversation started with um, the fact that we didn't have a computer science program, but we had great strength, obviously, in the liberal arts, and we had developed this Dominican experience that was working really well. And they had um, something that we felt like we needed, which was uh, computer science, not just only computer science, but just basic computer literacy and and, uh, ability to use technology uh, behind the scenes. So that's where the partnership started. And the idea was that Dominican uh, would supply liberal arts and core curriculum to their students. Their faculty would provide um, CS programs up to a minor for our students by the time they're ready to stand for independent accreditation our faculty would have developed the capacity to deliver the minor, uh, and they would have developed the capacity for to deliver the, the uh, liberal arts education. So that's where we are actually, is that they are standing for um, accreditation soon, next month. Um, and you know, they, they've built a great program and it's worked really well for our students. And I mentioned earlier that we started a business analytics program this year. You know That's something we wouldn't have had the internal capacity to know how to do recently until recently. But I I think one of the big things about it is that, you know, instead of saying, we want to build a computer science program from the ground up, and all that upfront investment from us, um, we basically bartered um, our knowledge, for their knowledge, right? Um, And that that's kind of the cool part of it. From from my perspective, the challenges are, Many as well. There's cultural differences. Um, they're a for profit, so we had to build these uh, like rigid firewalls between the for profit and the nonprofit. Um, we think we're pretty innovative, but you know, compared to um, a startup speed, we're pretty slow. So there, those are those are always challenges. But overall, it's been a really positive experience.
0: And one of the other distinctive things about that—not just building a great win-win partnership, but but the way of funding their students through income share agreements—that's something mm-hmm. we're seeing more of in higher ed. Is that something through this experiment, are you looking at it more broadly for Dominican? Is it something that you think is discreet to there because of obviously the high employability of those graduates?
1: For right now, um, I, we saw it as an advantage to the partnership, not because we were ready to adopt it, but because we thought we could learn how it worked. Um, and so that's what we're doing right now. We're, we're looking at you know what's the um, default rate um, is there a difference in graduation and, and student success rates for students on income share versus a more traditional model? So we haven't adopted it internally ourselves, but um, they're very willing to share data and we're learning a lot from their experience and so it's kind of you know being able to have a stake in the ground without having skin in the game if that makes sense uh, as we watch to see how that works.
0: Great So so if you look at, looking back on your tenure there what what, what are you? most proud of in terms of your accomplishments? What, what you've done?
1: Um, that's always a hard question. Cause I think uh, it, I, I can also tell you, you know, the, the list of things that didn't go perfectly. Right. But um, I, I would say uh, two things. A, one is, and we've talked about both of them. So, so one is um, kind of helping Dominican realize the power of what we were doing and kind of placing it in that broader higher education context. Um, like any small campus, there's a tendency for us to be kind of insular and um, the kind of traditional measures of th- that the general press uses like US News and something is not particularly meaningful for us. So, so you know, being able to say this is what we, we don't have to do everything. We just need to do this one thing that we care about really well and giving the institution some sense of, of confidence and pride in that has been really meaningful. The related piece is um, the one thing I feel like we've gotten right is student success. I mean, we went from, you know, 48 percent students of color to over 60 percent students of color and our graduation rates went way up at the same time. And that doesn't happen a whole lot. And so that I've got to believe we made a difference in those students lives. And that that feels really good.
0: Congratulations on that. As you say, that's it's rare to be able to move both of those as well as you have in as short a shorter period of time. Yeah. I'm something. curious as you look back on what what enabled you to be successful in this role? What what do you think were the key prior experiences or learnings, things that that helped you to succeed in the role of University Press?
1: <laughs> yeah, I told the story about about when I arrived at Oxford. I was like, okay, well, if you you know you sleep on the bench and you're, too... I think um, I don't try to make things different than they are. I'm, I'm fairly good at looking at reality and then saying, how do we work with that? Um, and I think so. There's a certain amount of, of practical perseverance that that goes with the job rather than trying to pretend that we're something that we're not. Um, so I think that helped. I think perseverance per se helped. I you know growing up on a cattle ranch is is not. It in my understanding of the world. And I, I still remember as a kid, um, I was probably like 12 or 14. I wasn't tiny, but we worked the cattle by horseback mostly. And, um, it was before, you know, the weather channel was ubiquitous and we knew a storm was coming in, but, um, we didn't get out there. And so we, we need to bring, um, the cows and calves and it was calving season into the, into the barns so that they would be protected. And, um, Basically, we started a little bit late. So the wind had come up, it was snowing. And of course, it was blowing right in their faces. So they didn't want to move towards the barns, even though that was safety, right. And I just remember being so cold and having trouble getting my horse even facing the right direction is that I was ready to give up. And my dad came over to me and he said, Look, you're this is painful, you're uncomfortable. But it's life and death for them, literally. They're going in the barn, <laughs> and and eventually they did. I don't remember the rest of it, but I still remember that moment about like um, sometimes you just have to get things done. <laughs> so I think I have a lot of perseverance, um, and like almost everybody, uh, I've been really fortunate. Uh, I don't, yeah, I, I I'm glad that I have some skills that are useful, but I'm not sanguine that these are. You know, I was like this would necessarily happen this way if I hadn't had the kind of teams and so on around me. And I've had a really strong cabinet. I've got a great board. Um, you know, it took us a while to get there in a couple of those cases, but we do have a, have those pieces in place. Uh, and I've had really good mentors along the way. I had a wonderful graduate advisor. So I feel really fortunate, actually. And hopefully, you know, what I gleaned from them has informed what I do.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned that along the way, of course, not everything worked the way you hoped. What, what, what were, as you saw it, the greatest challenges, or or the things that you you look back and you say, "Gosh, I wish," you know, that's what I'd like to have a do-over on.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think um, I think I took too long actually to make some of the big decisions early on. I was so worried about you know, as, as a president, especially if you come in new and I came from the other side of the country, you're so aware that you're the one who's not part of that culture. And I was really cautious initially about make, making uh, big decisions because I was afraid I was going to trip over things. And I think as a result, um, you know, some of the things that I, I wish I had, had made some cultural changes uh, to ensure students' um, success and students' quality, the quality of students' experience a little earlier. Um, I think we've, you know, we've gotten through that. Okay. But that, that's a pretty broad answer, I realize, but.
0: No, but I, I think it's not an uncommon one that people say, I sort of knew what we needed to do, but it took me longer than.
1: You yeah, know. It, it did take a while. And, and I think that, um, you know, I can certainly point to specific things and say, gosh, I wish, uh, I wish we launched such and such a program earlier. And so I'm, those always feel to me like 50, 50 hindsight, the cultural, sure. th- the cultural things last. Um, and I think we've made a difference, but I, I worry a little bit about the, some of those students my first few years. Mm-hmm.
0: And given, you know, obviously you, you've been very successful in this job, but we also know that it's not the easiest job in the world <laughs> these days, what what made you decide it was the right time for you to, to transition out?
1: Well, you know, it, it almost, um, I almost waited another year because uh, basically this was, 10 years had been my plan for the last couple of years. And uh, the book was completed. Our strategic plan is pretty much done. And, and my philosophy in general about presidencies is not that there's a, a perfect number. It's that they have a natural life cycle. And so as I saw the strategic plan coming to conclusion, it was you know, the subheading for it was Dominican at 130, which is actually this year when we turned 130 years old. And when you get done with that, then you either have to have the energy to reboot and have the next set of big ideas that you, you're just so fired up to lead um, that you're ready for you know another, another run, maybe five years at least, or maybe seven. And um, I didn't have that. I, you know, I love the place. I have some ideas about what should happen. But I, I realized I didn't have that, that fire to say, here's the next set of things that I'm just so eager to do. And um, so that was kind of where I was before the pandemic hit. And then the pandemic hit last spring and I delayed for a month or two because I wanted to make sure, I wanted to have confidence that we would get through it and get through it in good shape um, financially and otherwise. And uh, so that's when I had the conversation with the board chair and we were clear about what's our strategy for getting through and beyond and uh, and then it felt comfortable to, to be able to announce that I was going to step down.
0: Great. Well, just as a final question, I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned that getting where you were you really benefited from some key mentors. As you speak to people who are thinking about being a college or university president, what, what what's some advice that you, you give to folks as they think about the rule?
1: Um, fit really matters. So I, th- I know people who just want to be a college president. And, you know, that where you, Yeah, it's nice. You, you know, you get the If you're depending on where you are, it's like the house and the car and the events and, you know, you can wear your regalia and say the little speeches it wears off, right? Um, It is actually not a glamorous job. It is really hard work uh, if you do it well and you care. Um, So that means you have to be at a place that you can care about and that's a good fit for you. Uh, You know, one of the things that um, Judy McLaughlin often says at the new president's institute that I, I always think about is one of the reasons new presidents fail is what she calls um, rejection of alien tissue. Uh, that they just, it's not that they're bad or the institution's bad, but they don't, they don't align. And I think sometimes people have, um, I look, ambition is a good thing. I have I I don't think it's bad at all, but it needs to be aligned with, with fit and sense of purpose, because it's hard to do these things on force of will alone. You have to, you have to really have a passion for it. So I think my advice would be to, to wait for the place that is right. Not just, I want to be a president.
0: Well, Mary, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been really wonderful to speak with you, and wish you the the very best with this transition, your 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 final few months at Dominican, and and what comes next.
1: Thank you. It's so fun to see the work that you're doing at Chatham too, and I know we'll we'll uh, this will be a to be continued conversation. So thank
0: well, you. Well, please please stay in touch and come see us in Pittsburgh.
1: All right, great. <laughs> Thanks.